Hello, I'm Stuart Bowes. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. It's been a terrible week. Um, I mean, it's been a terrible two weeks. But it's been really interesting to see what has been happening on the front that we can control. The energy that we buy uh, from Russia. And you've seen so many things happening. And I think the only thing I can say is, is, despite all the horror that's going on right now in Ukraine, is that there is finally some global mobility. Um, I spoke last week about we need to take a stand in this country. We, as the energy sector, need to bear the burden. You know, I know it's going to affect all of us in terms of pricing and things in the shops, whatever. But hey, we can go to the shops. We can go out. Our children can play safely. That's not happening right now in Ukraine. So it may cost us, but it's a tiny price for us to pay as a society. So some things have happened. Clearly, you've been hopefully reading Future Net Zero and Energy Live News. You'll see that in a, at the time of recording, the US has now banned today all imports of Russian oil and gas. We've done the same. Uh, well has decided to join in and close its petrol stations. We've had uh, surveys that show brilliantly that we are willing as a society here to pay more for our energy bills to undermine Russia's war. We've got talk about how uh, the energy sector can come together. Uh, we've even had the boss of Ofgem saying the economics of energy has fundamentally changed. And actually, you know, we have to support the, the sanctions. We may be facing huge, huge spikes in our energy bills. And I think that is definitely on the way. But as I've said, that is a price we need to pay. And it brings me on to what we need to do. And in my view, this is not the end of net zero. This is actually the revitalization of energy independence for us all. I think that my personal view is something I've always said. We really must move forward on nuclear in a big way in this country. We need to continue to do our renewables, uh, but we also need to look, and I know this will be unpopular with a lot of people, but we need to look at oil and gas. We need to have that bridging gas. Think about it this way. What is the point of us stopping using our shale reserves and stopping using our North Sea oil reserves, and yet we're buying gas and oil from not just Russia, but appalling, appalling dictatorial uh, entities around the world. We know it. We all know who they are, right? We're buying oil and gas from these companies when we have it ourselves. The answer is to use carbon capture and storage. And if you listen back to a podcast I did with Alex Millward from Bez, we have the technology here. So yes, we can get away. We will have short-term pain, but we can get away with it if we start to use the resources that we have in this country in terms of our oil and gas resources. And that does mean, in my view, fracking and oil and gas with carbon capture. And if you think about all of this and you think, well, you know, that's not great. You know, what do you want about Sumit? You're thinking about the environment, think about the damage. The damage that will happen to us globally if we continue to do what we're doing now is even worse because there's a moral imperative here. One of the things that's been brilliant is the ability for us to communicate with people in Ukraine. And this week, there's a, an interview you really should listen to. It's a brilliant interview that Dimitris has done on Energy Live News with two um, 
NGO people from Ukraine who work on uh, climate campaigns. Uh, one of them uh, is called Julia Paskova, who runs a company called uh, Ecoltrava. It's, it's an NGO looking at um, climate. And her colleague, Konstantin uh, Krenitsky, who is from another NGO called EcoAction. They really sum up what I think, you know, my words mean nothing. These are people who really are the people we should listen to. And if you have any qualms about, you know, the cost of, you, you know, it'll take your company or your organization or your saving face in terms of getting out of a contract with a, a Russian oil and gas company, listen to this. Europe still um, uh, has a huge um, import of Russian gas each day, and uh, it does not stop. Uh, and we feel very strange and um, sad about it because uh, each um, a dollar from this import is going to war, to weapons uh, from Russian side, going to bombs, uh, to make bombs. And we are really, uh, really sad about it. I think, um, of course, governments trying to do something to stop Russia, but as we see, it's not enough because cities are still bombing, cities are still damaging. And I think each company, each big company, uh, they should think now and really, really, really make a huge divestment from Surgut, Neftegas, from Lukoil, from uh, uh, Russian coal companies, from Rosneft, from Gazprom, from Transneft and others and others Russian companies uh, which are supported uh, this damaging and this very, uh, this war. And I also think that like the sanctions that have been imposed are good. Like uh, I know the European Union and how they are like sometimes very slow in reacting to something. So the, the sanctions that were imposed, they're, they're extraordinary for the standards of European Union of the reaction time. But still, I agree completely with Julia that this is not enough. And make no mistake that this war, this Russia's war against Ukraine, is being financed by gas, oil, and coal industries. And Russia has them weaponized. Uh, and European countries and other countries in the world, they are very uh, heavily dependent on this fossil fuel. And I think what uh, the miscalculation that was made in the West is that uh, the annexation of Crimea and the start of war in Donbas region eight years ago must have been the wake-up call for this kind of sanctions. They weren't. So now we also have the, uh, the situation currently, the war in, in Ukraine, and this status quo, this practice of, okay, business as usual, uh, okay, we, we will impose some sanctions, but then we'll be buying from uh, Russia like fossil fuels. Uh, this is like full-fledged fossil addiction. And like the countries and Europe must kick it uh, because it's, it's very dangerous. And what some are, some are saying, like, okay, we can limit uh, the, the import, we can like restructure our contracts. Uh, in my opinion, it's not enough. It's not enough because every day uh, Russia receives millions and millions of euros. The day they turn into like financing the, the war uh, and the planes and the tanks and uh, so on that are killing Ukrainian citizens. Yulia there and Konstantin, we obviously wish them all we, we can in terms of being safe, but listen to their words. You know, we have to stop. Each dollar spent on Russian oil and gas is going to a war that is killing us. Don't worry about 
the financial pain you're going to go through. Don't worry about your customers. Don't worry about kind of your contracts and your legal fees. Just think if you don't do it, what is happening? Yeah. Enough of my lecturing. I don't want to do it, but I think it's something I feel so strongly about that I, I, I can't see why any of us in the UK energy sector should continue to do what we're doing. Let's move on. Let's talk about the main subject of the podcast today, and that is um, transport. And it's a very, very important part of where we're going is obviously we know about our mass transition away from um, fossil fuels for, for electrification of cars and that. But what about trains? What about the rail? Because if we are going to get to net zero, we have to move much more of our freight off the road onto rail. We have to use rail to expand with HS2 and things like this. We need to make sure it's clean rail. And there's a very interesting project taking place between Chiltern Railways and a company called Porterbrook, um, who are looking at hydrogen and hybrid engines for trains. And they've just uh, launched a new train, a couple of uh, locomotives uh, that are using this hybrid technology to show that there is, as we transition, an ability to have a bridging fuel. So I had a great conversation with uh, Bruno Muller, who's the head of strategy at Porterbrook, and uh, a guy called Ian Hyde, who's the engineering safety director of Chiltern Railways. Uh, we, we discussed where rail is and where this new technology could take us on a journey into a net zero future. Now, transport, it is the thing that we all look at, I suppose, after our homes as the big challenge. We've all seen what's going on with getting EVs, but what do we do about mass transport? How do we decarbonize the trains, the planes, the boats? You know, this is a really big thing that we're looking at, the government's looking at, and us as a society is looking at. And uh, I'm delighted today, today on the Net Hero podcast joined by two people who are working on exactly this issue. Bruno Muller, who's the Head of Strategy and Sustainability at Porterbrook. Hello, Bruno. Hi, Sammy. And Ian Hyde, who's the Engineering and Safety Director at Chiltern Railways. Hello. Great to be here. So let's talk about what you've done now. If you've been reading the platform, ladies and gents, I hope you have, you'll know that there's been a very interesting trial that's happened. It sort of started back in 2019, a collaboration between... Porterbrook, the University of Birmingham, looking at sort of something called Hydroflex, a hydrogen-powered uh, train. That was showcased at COP as well. And Chilton have been working with Porterbrook to try and bring this stuff together, working with Rolls-Royce as well, to create engines that are less noisy, that use diesel, that use hydrogen. So this kind of mixed world that we're entering. So um, can I just start with you right now, Ian? In terms of the trains we get on, I suppose the majority are, are diesel, are they? I, sort of, I know my, my community train does electric and then it goes to comes out of the tunnel and goes diesel. What, what sort of state of play are we in? Yeah, good question. So uh, across the UK, our trains are in the majority diesel powered. We do have a, a growing number of electric powered trains that uh, operate from an electric overhead wire and, and the beauty of those is they're generally more reliable quieter and if you produce the electricity that powers them from green sources they're obviously more environmentally 
friendly. On Chiltern Railways, all of our trains are diesel powered, and that's because we don't have any of the overhead electrified lines to, to be able to take power from. And there's no near plan um, over the next 10, 15 years to electrify the Chiltern route. So we, uh, we, we need alternative solutions to operate in pure diesel trains to help decarbonize and help the planet. Is that your decision? Or do you think it's what the customers want? Or is it just a business imperative? It's all three. Yeah, really, really good question. Um, you know, we frequently ask our stakeholders for feedback, you know, what, what is important to them. And sustainable travel is really important. Our clients, the Department for Transport, has uh, set a, a 2050 zero carbon target for the rail industry. And we have lots of local neighbours along our railway, particularly clean air zones in Marylebone and Birmingham. Uh, yeah. And they want clearly to have quiet trains outside that are less polluting um, and more environmentally friendly. When you look at um, Chilton, can you just give us an idea of how, how big it is? You know, how many passengers do you, do you carry a year? And I assume you, you operate mainly out of, out of Marylebone towards kind of sort of Oxfordshire that way, yes? Yes, that's right. We have two main routes, so kind of a, a more of a commuter route from Marylebone to Aylesbury and, and up to Oxford, and then a mainline route that runs through to Birmingham and to Stourbridge. We, we carry, um, you know, pre-COVID, 80 to 100,000 customers per, per year. Obviously, the pandemic has, has reduced that course, somewhat, yeah. but we are growing numbers back up steadily to the, the pre-COVID targets. And, and then, uh, Bruno, can you explain to the listeners what, what Porterbrook does? Yeah, of course. So, so Porterbrook uh, is a rolling stock owner and asset manager. So we own roughly a quarter of the trains operated in the UK, but we don't operate those trains ourselves. And that, that is the job uh, of train-operated companies like Chilton Railways, who lease the vehicles from us. So our responsibility is to invest in trains. So since privatization, we've invested over three billion pounds in new trains, but also to look after these assets throughout their whole life cycle of typically 30 to 35 years to ensure they remain safe, reliable, cost-effective, modern, uh, and also looking to, to minimize the environmental impact of those trains throughout. So you, you're, you're basically the um, what we sit in, the carriages, the engines, that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So tell us about this project then that you guys got together on, uh, particularly this th this sort of hybrid drive, because most people don't understand what a hybrid car is. Is it exactly the same? Um, I'll leave it to either of you to answer whoever feels more qualified. <laughs> well, Ian, you're, you're the engineer here, <laughs> if you want to take that one. <laughs> He's passed uh, the buck very well there, Ian. <laughs> yeah, ha happy to answer that. Thank you. So... Um, yeah, many similarities with a, a hybrid car. So the, the fleet of trains that we're considering at the moment, about 20 years old currently. So there's there's still a lot of life in them, but they are all diesel trains. And so we want to make them quieter, cleaner, more environmentally friendly. And so what we've done is take the quite old fashioned diesel engine off and replaced it with a more modern diesel engine that's compliant to, to European standards but also combine it with quite a powerful battery pack. Right. The way the train will, will operate is approaching stations when sitting in stations and when accelerated away from stations, it'll operate on the, the electric battery power. So it's quieter, gotcha. cleaner. Yeah. But then when you uh, are onto the main line, 
the diesel engine will start and that diesel engine then recharges the battery and enables you to travel at, at a high speed in that diesel mode. So yeah, lots of similarities to a, a hybrid um, petrol electric car. And, and in terms of kind of the, 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 um, the question, I suppose the listener would ask is, well, you're going halfway, why don't you just get rid of them all and make them all battery packed? Yeah, really good point. And, and the answer at the moment is the, the maturity of battery technology and the ability um, right. to be able to carry enough energy in a battery to accelerate your train up to 100 miles per hour and, and, and travel for that, you know, for us, a long distance journey from London to Birmingham. So that's the challenge at the moment. So I think right. the technology is there for shorter, uh, maybe lower speed journeys, not yeah. quite the mainline high speed. It's it's like me with, it's like me with my electric cars, great in London, but I, I worry when I get them, I do. Right? Bruno, what was your involvement with this thing? Because it's called hybrid flex, is that right? Yes, absolutely. And 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 just to to jump on the uh, the the last one, I think the, the very important thing to keep in mind uh, is that trains typically last for you know again thirty to thirty five years. So. Uh, right. The trains you buy today will still be in operation beyond uh, 2050. And mindful uh, of our 2050 uh, net zero target, uh, we need to make procurement decisions that allow uh, you know, net zero operation in 2050. So the benefits of actually retrofitting existing trains that are in, in operation today is that you can deliver some significant improvement in terms of carbon emissions and then leave enough time to electrify a lot of the network that needs to be electrified to get to that net zero position uh, and not wait until you have uh, you know, finalized your electrification plans, which is always going to take uh, several decades to start making a difference. Uh, so, so that's why we, we see the focus on uh, existing diesel assets as absolutely critical in delivering those interim de uh, decarbonization targets. So the question then follows is that, okay, you do that, you build one now, which is kind of, you know, say, I'm making it up, but say 40% is, is, is battery and 60% diesel. In about five years time, have you got the ability to go and get out the rest of the diesel with a better battery or will it mean scrapping the train? How, how do you plan for that? Because these things cost a lot of money, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. The thing to note here is that there is no silver bullet for decarbonizing rail. You will need a range mm -hmm. of solution to that. Yeah. And the first one clearly is electrification. So 38% so of the network is currently uh, electrified. This probably needs to go up to uh, something like 80% by 2050 to, to, to reach net zero. And alongside that, because there are areas of the network which will always be too expensive to electrify because not they are not uh, very intensely used. And for that, you need alternative solutions. So you need things like battery trains, you need things like hydrogen trains, but those are very new technologies that need to be developed. So we are taking an active, active role in bringing, bringing those technologies to market. And that was the meaning of Hydroflex, which we brought to COP26 in November. Uh, but these are new tech, new operating models, new standards. So we need, we need to start now to learn about the technology for that to be more widely rolled out in the coming years. Yeah. So Ian, th this this um, hybrid train at present, the battery and and diesel, is it in service? Uh, how much sort of emissions is it saving? Yes, it is in service. We we launched it into passenger service just earlier this month, and. Um, we'll be running it throughout this year, really, to prove the technology, prove the reliability and, and prove the benefits that it brings. And, and what we're forecasting is a 25% reduction 
in fuel consumption. Right. Uh, a 70% reduction in, in the noise emitted. Yeah, that's uh, a very important point, actually. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, particularly our, our local neighbours that can live very, very close to the railway and our depots. Um, but it, it also will bring a 75% a reduction in uh, nitrous oxide emissions and 90% reduction in diesel particulates as well. So there, there's some real significant benefits from the technology that, and, and as I say, we're running it throughout this year to, to prove that it will work and, and deliver those. What, what part of your network is it on? Where, where would the passengers get on this train? Yeah, so presently it's operating between Aylesbury and Prince's Risborough. Um, it will further then move to Aylesbury to Marylebone route. Um, and then we've beyond that, we'll, we'll start operating it to Oxford. So we're starting um, shorter routes and then building it up to make sure we, we, we kind of really put it through its paces to yeah. prove it can cope with all, all types of services we operate. And you, you have two of these trains, correct? Uh, one, we have one train, it's comprised of two vehicles, oh, so okay. a two-car train with, uh, it's obviously got this diesel battery pack on each vehicle. So looking at where we are, gents, I mean, this, this idea of, um, and, and I think you said it earlier, Bruno, there is no silver bullet. Another technology that you know people are talking about is using hydrogen. Now, where is hydrogen? Uh, come through and can you explain what, what you're doing on that front from Porterbrook? In partnership with Network Rail, so we brought uh, Hydroflex, which is the UK's first hydrogen powered train to COP26. I think one of the things that we wanted to do that is to make sure that uh, rail was in the mind of world leaders and policymakers when discussing the decarbonisation of transport, because it's important to, re uh, to, to remember that before the pandemic, rail accounted for one in 10 journeys in Britain, which is 1.4% of transport emissions. So rebuilding passenger numbers is absolutely critical and the first thing that we need to do to, to reduce transport emission, emission as a whole. Now, that being said, uh, we also need to decarbonize rail. As we discussed, electrification is quite key. Uh, and then you have some alternative traction technologies for the routes that can't be easily electrified. So battery technology and hydrogen technology are the most uh, promising currently. Hydrogen... You, sorry to, is, to get in there, but to explain hydrogen, because people don't really understand hydrogen. I don't think they do. Because you hear this thing, oh, it's a fuel cell car. There's a Toyota, I think, that's run by hydrogen. Isn't it? But I, I didn't quite <laughs> exactly get it. I thought, well, blimey, they've got some tanks of hydrogen, which is highly explosive, and then you stick that on something that moves. So I'd be even more worried. Can you explain how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, and it, 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 interesting that you mentioned that, you know, the uh, getting a new technology onto the railway, railway requires a lot of safety and approvals work. And this is, you know, one of the key things that the project has been demonstrating uh, before COP26. So the base principle is you have uh, hydrogen stored on board uh, into high pressure tanks, and then right. Uh, the, the hydrogen stored on board reacts with uh, oxygen uh, from the air to produce three things, uh, heat, uh, water, and electricity, which is the thing we are uh, interested in. And in turn, that powers uh, the, uh, the train and creates a, a form of self-powered traction, which creates absolutely zero carbon emissions uh, at the point of use. Now, clearly, the question is how you produce the hydrogen. Course, uh, so yeah. we have a solution that's uh, net zero ready and the train we brought to COP26 was 100% run on green hydrogen uh, but there is the whole challenge of building that green hydrogen supply chain uh, to, 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 to then uh, you know, power the rail networks and the other industries. 
And you've done this with um, the University of Birmingham, is that right? Yeah, absolutely correct. So, so we started the project back in 2018 with the University of Birmingham, and the partnership has been absolutely key in, you know, developing the technology, uh, creating the first prototype uh, of Hydroflex, which was launched in 2019, and then following that, taking a more advanced and productionized version to COP26 in partnership with NetRide. And is that train running? Is that something that's out there in service somewhere? It's not currently in service, so we are in discussion with the Department for Transport and various operators uh, to, to launch the first small-scale project. And what we're looking to do here is very much to start building um, experience in terms of real-life operations, starting building the supply chains, because all of that is new. So it's all about starting small-scale uh, yeah. and then expanding when the technology becomes a bit more mature. Ian, for you, you know, for your railway, um, where do you see hydrogen? Because this is one of the things people have talked about. Some people say it's going to be brilliant for mass, you know, large transport shipping rail. Others say it's just a complete white, you know, elephant in the room. Uh, white elephant, sorry, getting my metaphors wrong. Um, so how do you see it? Yeah, I think it's a really credible technology. Um, the, the, the challenge that Bruno's uh, described is creating that supply chain both for the the equipment and, and, a, and a, a consistent supply of hydrogen um yes. that, that we could refuel the train with um so we, we need to really condense the size of the equipment that is on a train so you know it can fit underneath uh, and, and not uh, or leave plenty of space for for passengers on board um so those two key things condense the technology create the supply chain and, and then thirdly really yeah how, how do we keep that regular supply of hydrogen uh, readily and uh, available as, as we do with the likes of diesel or electricity we've got the state of um, being now where you know you fly and you can make in a you can pay a gratuity to try and offset your flight I, I don't know if that's happening already in the world of rail or it's being planned I mean what, what, what is the rail industry doing, and I'll, I'll put this to both of you, to try and get us, the consumer, to think about that? Because we do get it. I mean, I, I, when I do a long journey, when I was up at COP, you know, there was no way I was going to drive or fly when I took the train. So, um, but I did wonder, I did wonder about that sort of stuff. Well, what, what, what do you think is happening in the, in the sector to try and get us, the consumer, to try and understand a bit more? If, if I maybe make a start on this one, I think the uh, you know offsets are obviously very interesting, but I think the, the advantage we have over aviation is we have a credible path to decarbonize rail and to aim for almost absolute zero emission, and that's within re, uh, you know within reach uh, looking at 2050. So I think it's you know it's right to think about offsets, but I think the priority should be to reduce emission in absolute terms. And, so that, and that's, and, invest, that's investment. Then. That's what you're talking about. Yes, well, that's investment, that's innovation, but I think this is what we need to aim for rather than offsetting uh, in a way that sort of distracts you from, uh, from reducing emissions, which I think should be the priority. I agree with you. But Ian, as you do all this investment, I, when I turn up at Maryland train station, might find that my ticket costs me a bit more. How do you do that balance? Yes, that, that is a, uh, a difficult challenge and new technology do, does often cost more. Um, but I, th I think the great thing that we've been doing with Portsbrook and Rolls-Royce is uh, developing and, and innovating 
And if we can prove the technology um, is, is reliable and delivers the benefits, it's then about scaling it up. And in scaling things up, you can make things more cost effective. Yeah. So um, absolutely recognize the challenge. I think on the whole, on the whole, rail travel is one of the more environmentally friendly ways to travel. Perhaps yeah. we don't promote that quite as well as we, we could and we should. Um, but which is why we, we really like to take these opportunities of something innovative like hybrid flex to uh, to show the things that we're, we're going further to try and bring more environmental benefits. At present, if I get on your, your hybrid train, do I pay more than if I get on your normal diesel train? Uh, no, your, your ticket price is, is one ticket price, uh, okay. whether it's the, the hybrid flex or one of our other train services. When we look at rail in, in the main, um, you know, lots has been said about kind of, you know, even I, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old, but uh, the Beecham report closed down loads of what was kind of post-war railway lines because they weren't profitable enough. I think that the um, the pandemic has shown things people are, people don't know if they're going to commute anymore. There's this whole hybrid world of working. So how do you think the rail industry will cope with that? But also the idea that actually, like you said, if you're going to go from A to B, the problem a lot of people find is the convenience that, you know, you get on and the, the carriages are packed and it's overbooked and, you know, the toilets aren't great and all of that stuff, which some people go, well, you know, I'd rather get in my car. How does the rail industry try and help us all on this path to net zero, and, but also deal with the challenge of this kind of new way of working that we're certainly going to be in for a little while? Yeah, if, if I could go first on that one, then thanks. Uh, absolutely recognise the challenge. And we've worked hard through the pandemic to minimise costs and, and tailor the train service that we offer to the customer demand. Uh, and in the first lockdown, it's all about transporting key workers. Yeah. But as we've, as we've progressed um, and, and, you know, the country's opened up as a whole, we've been able to increase services um, such that we are managing that capacity uh, and delivering service in the most cost-effective way. Yeah, I was just going to say, are you? Do you think you're going to convince us to go? Do you know what? If you're going, take the train rather than the car. Uh, yes. So I, I mean, we're, we're doing different kinds of marketing, um, improving the service quality that we we deliver. So, what is the customer's experience? Uh, you know, we're making sure the toilets are clean. They are working. <laughs> the train is clean inside. It's it's in good condition. And it arrives on time and departs on time, which is what, what customers uh, expect and deserve. So we're working hard on, on those things. Um, and I think where, where we, can, we can do more is that promotion of, of rails, green credentials and yes. the, the more environmentally things we're doing like hybrid flex. Yeah, sure. And Bruno, what about from your point of view? I mean, you know, if you I can't remember what percentage you say of UK stock you guys run. We, we own around a quarter of the trains uh, operating in the UK. Yeah, yeah, so that's going to be a very significant part of what we do. What's your answer to try and get us onto this kind of, you know, more greener way of using rail? I think what Ian said uh, previously was, was spot on. You know, it starts with uh, providing a core service that works for, uh, for customers. So it's, it's reliable, it's timely, it's there when you need it, and you rebuild this uh, trust uh, in, in, in the railways. Then I think it's important not to stop investing uh, in rail. There are 
cost yeah. constraints at the moment, revenue is down, but I think we need to look at the longer term, look at 2050 and the model ship that needs to be delivered if we are to achieve the decarbonization of transport. So I think it's really important to remain focused on the long term. So we are continuing to invest to improve the customer experience. For example, we are investing 100 million uh, in our fleet of trains operated uh, on the Southern network and very much continuing to do that despite the, uh, despite the pandemic. And I think if we have a, a network that, uh, that, that, that works when passengers come back, if we have an improved customer experience, if we make it easier to integrate with other modes, uh, and if we are flexible enough, uh, enough to adapt to new traveling patterns, because clearly that's going to change. Yeah. Uh, you, the, the days of the five-day commute, uh, yeah. commuting week, weeks over, so we do need to adapt. Uh, but we firmly believe that you know, the, 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 the outlook is positive. I just want to end, guys, with the future. Now, um, I haven't been to Japan, but I've always wanted to go on those magnetic trains, the bullet trains. Uh, where, where are we going to be? In, in, in 10 years' time, what sort of trains are we going to be riding? Are they principally still going to be pretty much mainly diesel? What do you think? Well, the, the, the industry has you know, very clear targets in terms of uh, reaching net zero by 2050, uh, phasing out diesel-only trains by by 2040. So I think we are, you know, heading towards something that's clearly more electric uh, as a whole. Some new modes of traction, including hydrogen um, and batteries, and uh, a few more, uh, you know, high-speed lines. Uh, we've seen the uh, the uh, the debate around HS2 quite critical as well. Yeah, fewer diesel trains, but I think in the meantime, it's really be important as we've been discussing today to to do everything we can to minimize the output of those trains before they are phased out altogether. No, absolutely. I do believe in that bridging because, mm. you know, taking a, a small step is better than trying to wait five years to do anything, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ian, what about your vision? Matt, can, can, I, can I get a super fast magnet train, please? <laughs> From Maryland to Oxford, uh, we we'd love to be able to do that. <laughs> yes, as as soon as possible. But yeah, what what, what Bruno describes uh, absolutely. I, I would echo that. It's uh, more modern trains with with different power supplies and, and perhaps a mix of power supplies as we move through phasing out diesel, bringing in battery, bringing in electric, bringing in hydrogen as as appropriate. So. Um, HS2, yeah, it's uh, it can be controversial, but it creates capacity. Yes, and and yeah. you could say it, it is similar to the Japanese Shinkansen lines that have been so successful. So I think that that blend of um, electric high-speed trains, mm. um, lower-speed regional electric trains, uh, and then diesel battery hybrids. I think there's a there's a real mix um, that we'll see over the next few years as we progress to yeah, decarbonised in 2050. And finally, for, for us, you know, uh, as passengers, you know, we think about this, but obviously there's a, a commercial element to this as well, isn't it? There's people moving masses of goods around the country. We see it all the time, you know. Um, th this, this would really make a big difference to our emissions as a nation if we've moved things back onto tracks and those tracks were cleaner. Yeah, very, very much. And, and the rail freight industry has, um, keeps growing from strength to strength. And, and equally, they, you know, they run a large proportion of electric trains. Um, it's, it's just on the, the routes that aren't electrified, they need to operate diesel uh, locomotives. Yeah. But equally, they, they look at alternative fuels um, and um, bi-mode or tri-mode, you know, diesel, electric and, and battery trains as well are coming towards the market. So it, it is a, a real joined up 
passenger and freight approach um, to, to the industry. Bruno, your final thoughts on that? On the, on yeah, the- I, I, I completely you know, echo what uh, Ian said here. Uh, we really see a massive potential for rail freight going forward. Uh, I think sustainability is one of the main drivers behind that. Uh, there are no easy ways of decarbonizing um, AGVs currently. So the, the no, best way you, no. you know, the best way you can do that is actually transfer some of those movements from uh, from uh, road to rail. And we see a lot of businesses starting to look into this mm. um, in you know distribution, logistics, etc., etc., etc. So uh, I, we, we see you know massive opportunity there. Uh, there is a question around capacity. So currently. Uh, we have fewer passenger trains, so that's more opportunities for um, freight train to use those paths. Uh, but looking at the longer term, I think, again, uh, as uh, Ian said, HS2 is, uh, is quite important in delivering that capacity that allows you to deliver the model shift uh, from road to rail, both for um, goods and passengers. Yeah, so I think there was an old advert that said... Uh... It's good to take the train or something like that. So, yeah, I think you're both right. Uh, Bruno, uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the Net Hero podcast. Thanks for your time today. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks for having us. Ian there and Bruno. So plenty more on that. The, that train is around. So if you're in this sort of Chilton area, watch out for it and see what it feels like. We'll try and get out there and ourselves and uh, take a ride on it to, to let you know. Uh, you heard in the middle of all of that, uh, the trailer for the Big Zero Show, and I'd like to say it is absolutely flying. So uh, 250 plus uh, delegates have registered. Get your free ticket. We only have 500. So go to bigzeroshow.com. That's bigzeroshow.com and get involved. Plenty more speakers lining up. Uh, we've got lots more content for you which we'll be revealing in the next few weeks so i really hope to see you there on the 21st of june thanks for listening to the podcast please make sure you listen and take heed of what our ukrainian friends said there let's try and get away from all of this let's make sure we actually do something that's morally right and walk away from our russian energy imports until the next time take care see you soon You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.